uh, chapter 2, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 to 11. So let's, uh, let's read this portion of John's Gospel. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciple, disciples believed in him. Well, let me lead us in a prayer, and I'll invite Steve up to speak. Uh, Father God, thank you for this food, thank you for stew on a cold uh, winter lunchtime, and we thank you for the opportunity to return to our jobs, and also to restart meeting together here at Gospel and City. And we pray now, as Steve opens up your word, that there would be new starts happening in our lives as we listen to your word and respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, it's great to be uh, back with you together again, and Happy New Year to you all. Uh, And it's really great to be back into John's Gospel. And uh, this chapter has so much to teach us um, as we think of making a new start at the start of a new year. But let me begin um, by remembering something from 10 years ago. It was about 10 years ago when I walked into the ballroom in the uh, Belfast Art uh, Building, the Belfast Art College, to see my wife Lindsay's final year art installation piece. She was working on a piece called Intimacy, which was an installation piece that would have covered kind of like most of this wall. And it was made up of a series of over a hundred little small portrait kind of paintings of keyholes. Every individual uh, piece of art was a, a, a work of art in itself, a little keyhole that was either a picture or painted with mixed media. But when you put together the whole installation, all over a hundred little mini paintings, and step back, the whole composite image made the outline of a cross. And the whole idea was this is where we find real intimacy with God through the cross, in a sense, the keyhole that we look through to see the glory of God. In a sense, John is doing something very similar in his gospel. You'll see in the little outline before you, the first point I've made on it, just for us to track along with, is just remembering what John is doing in his gospel. He is giving us, through the gospels, or through the gospel, a series of portraits 
of the life of Jesus. It's a historical record of Jesus' life. And each account that John gives, so here we have chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, each account is like a little portrait where we get a glimpse of one aspect of the life of Jesus Christ. Yet when you read and see all the portraits together in the gospel and then step back, you get this beautiful composite image of the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what John writes at the end of the gospel about his purpose statement. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here we have, John says, a collection of signs When we look at them individually and then together, we see something of the glory or the nature or the true identity of Jesus. And John's goal in helping us to see Jesus is that we may believe and receive him and have life in his name. Now, look down at your little copy of John's gospel at verse 11 of chapter 2. John writes... After this first portrait of Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine, he says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and he manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here we see very clearly that John 2, 1 to 11 is part of the bigger picture of what John is doing. Remember his purpose statement? There's lots of different signs that I could include, but these signs are written so that you believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here in chapter 2, verse 11, we see clearly we we are getting right at the heart of what what John is doing if we see that, right, there's a sign here we're to see and then there's some glory that I'm to see in this sign when I understand it correctly and then I have a response to make. Will I believe or will I choose not to believe. And that's the little outline that I want us to use as we're looking at these verses together. I want us to simply look at the sign first. Let's just walk through the account of what Jesus did. Then let's see, what are we supposed to see here of the glory of Jesus? And then finally, let's briefly think of the response that we might make to this. So just simply walking through the verses, we're told that there is a wedding at Cana in Galilee. It's a small village It would have been a big celebration that could have gone on for about one week. Jesus' mother was there, we're told. We don't read anything of Jesus' father moving forward in the Gospels. Tradition historically records that Joseph had probably died so that Jesus' mother had come to lean more on him for provision and family care. Jesus was invited to this wedding along with his disciples. And just before I walk on through the narrative, I just want to pause for a moment and think about this. I find it quite beautiful that in the first portrait here that John gives in the public ministry of Jesus, we read of Jesus being invited to a wedding and him accepting. Now, why do I say that? Well, the whole of the first chapter was telling us that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God, the eternal God 
coming down into the world to live amongst his people. And I think it's just simply stunning that the first act in the public ministry of Jesus is him simply being invited to a wedding, him attending the wedding party, God dwelling amongst man, enjoying this great celebration. This is God tabernacling, tenting amongst his people. There's something beautiful about that. There's something earthy and rooted about the, the, the incarnation of Jesus here in this opening portrait. But we see the big problem of the account. There is something lacking at this wedding party. There is a lack of wine. This would have been a serious issue in first century Palestine. The groom's job was to make sure there was enough food and wine for everyone attending. Some people have recorded that, that people could have taken, the, the, the bride's family, for example, could have taken legal action against the groom if he failed to provide appropriate hospitality at the wedding party. So this, was, this was a serious issue. Jesus' mother turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus says something quite mysterious. He says, woman, what is this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we'll just hold that thought there for a moment as we walk on through the narrative. Mary, Jesus' mother, who's not named here, believes that Jesus will be able to do something about this lack of wine. And so she turns and says to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. It's a very simple statement, but it really summarizes Christian discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. So Jesus sees six big stone jars sitting there um, at the side of wherever they are. What you're to think of here in these big six, six big jars is like the garden center at home base or B&Q. You've got these big kind of terracotta plant pot jars. Each of them, we're told, hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus calls the servants and says, look, fill those six jars up with water. Fill them right up to the brim. They do so. We're told that these jars were usually used for Jewish ceremonial washing, which meant in a day where Jews worshipped God, they believed that they had to wash go through a series of washings to be kind of clean and right to worship God. A lot like Muslims do today. They wash before they go to the mosque. Symbol of being purified in a sense as you come to approach God. So these big jars were usually used for these washing ceremonies before people would worship. Jesus has them filled up with water. This would have been no small job. You're talking um, probably seven to 800 liters of water total in these jars. Remember, they didn't just turn on a tap to fill them. This would have been a serious job to do. But then quickly the narrative just moves over this and says, when the master of the feast, well, Jesus called the servants to take some of the water and bring it to the master of the feast. And then we just read, when the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine, he said to the groom who was responsible for providing the wine, everyone serves the good wine first. When and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. So the pattern here was typically you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, start off with the poor wine and move to the good wine. 
start off with the best. And then the more people drink and they loosen up and they relax, they don't think as much about the, the taste of the wine. Uh, and then you can go down to the poor wine. But here, what is stunning to the master ceremonies is, what are you doing? You've saved the best to now, the really good wine for now. This is not normal. And then we have the comment in verse 11 from John. That this was the first of his signs at Canaan and Galilee. Through it he manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. So there's the first portrait of Jesus that John gives in his public ministry. Water being turned into wine. And yet there is something that we are to see here of the glory of Jesus that can help us to understand who he is and have our confidence to put our faith in him. So let's just step back for a moment and think, right, seeing the sign, seeing the portrait given, what are we to see of the glory of Jesus here? And I think it's important to understand before we think of what we see of Jesus' glory here, is to, we need to understand something about signs in John's gospel. A sign or a miracle that is recorded in John's gospel is never just given to wow a crowd or to be, show, show that Jesus is some miracle worker and he can gain a following by people, by astonishing people. The word sign is used to show that when Jesus performs something supernatural or outside of the ordinary, it always points to something beyond itself. So the act of Jesus turning water into wine here is not just to wow people and go, wow, he's powerful. There's a sign, it points to a deeper reality that we are to seek to try to understand. And so we could say a lot here about the deeper realities in this portrait of Jesus. But let me just make two very brief comments, two aspects of Jesus' glory that we are to see in this account. First, I think the disciples saw, and we are to see in Jesus, someone who can provide for us what we fail to provide for ourselves. They saw in Jesus someone who can provide for us what we fail to provide for ourselves. The problem presented in this narrative, in this wedding party, is that there is a lack, a lack of something, a lack here of wine. But in a very real way, I think this lack of wine at the wedding stands as an illustration of a much deeper reality that we all experience. We all have a lacking problem. Just think about your Christmas holidays for a moment. Were your holidays everything you hoped they would be? I heard someone just the other day in a car park in Newcastle saying to a friend, do you know what, it's, just, it's good to have it all over and done with, isn't it? And I remember just sort of reeling back and thinking, wow, is that what Christmas is to us today, that we're busy, it's all go, 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 and then in the end you look back and say, oh, I'm glad that's done. <laughs> I just thought there was something about that that really struck me and, and made me sad. Have you ever stopped to wonder, is this life all there is? Have you ever stopped to think, is, is life all about just working really hard to earn money 
to enjoy my holiday. And then in the end, I go back to work and I work really hard again so that I can get enough money to enjoy another holiday. And so often in the midst of that holiday, you panic in the middle of it. Oh, am I, am I getting the full enjoyment? Am I making the most of it? Because I've only got so much time off. And if I don't use it well, then I'm going to have lost it and not used it well and then be back to work. Sometimes we can get into this pattern of work and busyness. And we fail to stop and just think, is there something lacking in my life? We are like leaky buckets. I think we have to keep trying to fill ourselves up with meaning. Fill ourselves up with holidays, busyness, anything to try and help cover over this problem that we all know is there. We all lack something. Life can be filled with work, busyness, parties, weddings, money, holidays. But in the end, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all come back to the fact that we know there's something lacking in my life. And though I try work, holidays, busyness, family, friends, Christmas parties, everything to fill it up, man, I just keep coming back to the, the fact that I'm a leaky bucket. I need to keep filling up that which is lacking. The Rolling Stones, I think, spoke for all of humanity when they proclaimed loudly, I can't get no satisfaction. Mary hit the nail on the head profoundly when she looked at humanity at that wedding and said, they have no wine. Characterized in the midst of all of this celebration and joy, there's something lacking. I wonder, do you know what that feels like? To be in the midst of a crowd, in the midst of a workplace, and you put up a brave face, but in the, in the heart, deepest place of your heart, you know in the midst of all the joy and all the celebration and everyone else who's got it together, man, there's something lacking. Well, this text teaches us, this first public account of Jesus' ministry teaches us that Jesus comes into our lacking something problem. And he can bring real transformation. Where we are lacking, he can bring an abundance. And this is the second aspect of Jesus' glory I think we're to see in John chapter 2, 1 to 11. What would the disciples have seen second? I think in Jesus, they and we are to see someone who meets us in our need in our lack, and he can bring us his fullness or his abundance. There are a couple of clues in the text that help us to see how Jesus brings a fullness to humans who are lacking something. Look at verse 6. We read that the stone jars were used to hold water for the Jewish rites of purification. So these jars were usually used to hold water, not for drinking, but for ceremonial washing. John, remember, is writing to a largely Jewish audience in first century Palestine, trying to convince them of the nature and identity of Jesus. When the water was turned to wine, the master of the banquet said, everyone brings out the good wine first, but you've brought out the good wine last. Or as the NIV translation translates it, 
you've saved the best for now. The message here is that all these old ceremonies of washing, these jars used to be associated with these old Jewish ceremonies of washing. But the message is that all of those old ceremonies of washing, all that went with that, sacrifices, cleansing, we could say today all of our own efforts of trying to fill up our lacking problem, they're all outdated. They don't deliver. They're incomplete. In a sense, the message here is that the coming of Jesus is like the dawning of a whole new day. Jesus is something better than everything that has gone before. I remember adverts for a brand of tea. I don't know if any of you remember it. They used to have this little jingle. Um, uh, something about when the day is past, you go and save the best for last. In a sense, that's the message here. The jars that used to be used for this kind of ceremonial washing that was external, that never washed the heart, were now outdated. In Jesus, something new was coming. He could bring true purification. He could bring something that really cleansed and really transformed our situation. A second clue in what we're to see in this narrative as to what it's all about comes from that enigmatic statement of verse 4. Jesus says, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you read through John's gospel once, you'll see that every other time when Jesus uses this language of his hour coming, he speaks of his arrest and his punishment and his death on the cross. So in some way, Jesus is looking at this wedding. There's a lack of wine and his mother's looking to him to meet the problem, deal with the lack of wine. And Jesus is saying, my hour, the hour of my death, it's not come yet. What is Jesus saying there? I think in a very real way, Jesus is looking at this whole situation as a kind of parable. A parable of humans lacking something. And he is the one who's going to transform that situation. And he says, look, see this, this lacking of wine, this emptiness that I'm going to meet with an abundance. My art to do that, the reality of what this is pointing to has not come yet. There is a day coming where I'm going to meet the deepest need, the deepest lack with the wine of my death. And what I provide through that death. But my hour has not yet come. Jesus compares the situation to his death. And how a true lack in humanity will be met by him in a much more real way than him just providing wine at a wedding. Humans cannot provide for themselves. Jesus can provide what is lacking. The message of this opening portrait in John's gospel is simply this. Life before Jesus is like drinking only water. Life with Jesus is like drinking fine wine. Everything you try to do to meet your own lack, it's just like drinking water. But when Jesus is brought into your life to meet your lack and your needs, it is like drinking 
fine wine. Sometimes we can think that following Jesus is restrictive. It will reduce my life down to something tight and restraining. Whereas Jesus simply says no. And this this account of Jesus' first miracle simply says no. Jesus does not come to constrict our lives. He comes to bring us into his abundance. The volume of wine is important. One writer has recorded that there was enough wine produced by Jesus to make over 1,000 bottles of wine. The idea here is Jesus transforms us from a place of lacking to a place of abundance. This is a sign that points forward to how he will ultimately meet our great lack, our great problem, our need. And that is our sin problem. That we are separated from God because we have sinned and we cannot do anything in ourselves to fill ourselves up in the way that only God can. And so Jesus comes to bring true purification, true washing from sin, so that we can come into his abundance. But finally we see then the response. The disciples saw something of Jesus' glory here and they believed in him. In John 1, we saw that all of humanity in light of Jesus are presented with the call to respond. Will we receive him and believe in him and enter into his abundance? Or will we reject him and choose to stick with our water over the wine that he offers? If we receive Jesus, we're given a new identity. We are cleansed from our sin and we're made right with God. We enter his abundance. So the question is, will you... Enter this year with the new day that dawns in Jesus Christ. Receive him into your life and be made new by him, entering into his abundance instead of living in your own lacking. We see the glory of his provision, the glory of his purification, the glory of the plenty he provides, and the glory of Jesus simply accepting the invitation to the party.